1: Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey
2: guys, this is Dr. Santosh, your pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. And
1: it's Dr. Ward on the ER doc. But it's once again time for another journal club. Yay! Nice. And I was just watching Terminator, the, <laughs> the newest one, last week.
2: Genesis, yes.
1: Yes, Terminator Genesis. Is that a good one? Which, You know, it actually was. The title makes it sound like a nutritional supplement. (laughs) I feel like sequels go bad after, like, two. No, but... Uh, Well, the Terminator sequel... The Terminator series is like milk. The first one was great. The second one was even better. The third one started to spoil a little bit. But Genesis is the yogurt of the Terminator series. Oh,
2: very nice. Is it Greek yogurt? I'm kidding. I'm kidding.
1: Oh, it's it's nice and thick. (laughs) Big old chunks of action, nice. uh, but I was watching it and it got me thinking both about Skynet and the Resistance. And so that is what this episode of Journal Club is dedicated to: things that deal with Skynet and Resistance. Yeah. And our first story is actually one that we we hear at Travel Medicine, you know, the three of us on our computers, <laughs> take very seriously, and we've covered it a number of times before. So. Ward, why don't you lead into where we start?
3: Okay, so remember a few travel medicine episodes ago, we talked about PrEP. That's the pre-exposure prophylaxis for people who are at risk of becoming infected with HIV. And it's a one pill a day, every day, that was approved in 2012 by the FDA. There's been a lot of controversy in terms of, hey, is it going to increase risky behavior? Does it actually work? Are people going to not... Not going to use condoms? Is it meant to be used without condoms? Well, no. It turns out.
2: Um, <laughs> well, that, <laughs> that is the first. That's All exciting. right, moving on. Next article. Moving
3: on. No. <laughs> uh, there hasn't been a follow-up study about six months ago or a year ago saying that it was almost 100 percent effective. Well, this new study came out and it's a case study of a gay man in Canada who has been taking this medication every day for two years, and he contracted HIV while taking this medication. He is adamant that he's been taking this medication every single day. And they even did a blood spot test, which I'm not sure what a blood spot test is, because Trubata, you can test, there is a test to see if you've actually been taking it. But a supposedly a blood spot test show that he has been taking it at least in the last week or month, uh, intimate with his partner who is HIV positive, and supposedly with undetectable levels of HIV. But he also has multiple acts of anal receptive sex with casual partners without the use of condoms. I suspect that's what did it. You know, I mean,
1: just you know. Yeah, we had covered in the last episode. We'd given the update about the effectiveness of Truvada, and we we had warned that you know nothing is a hundred percent perfect. Nothing is totally safe, and I told people that even though it looks like this medicine is very successful in its intended target, you do and should still use some form of protection. Now, this this man was compliant with the medications but he was also engaging in very risky behaviors as it says multiple acts of anal sex with casual partners without the use of condoms and that that sentence alone
3: has about two or three different risk factors <laughs> well he's the ideal candidate for prep for sure now should he use other modes of protection in addition to prep is you know i, I mean i think the answer is yes yeah. he should okay protect himself and his and his partners but you know interestingly here one of the potential dangers in using prep and prep only in HIV prevention is that it could spawn off a strain of HIV that's drug resistant and it looks like that's what might have happened here
2: these are springing up all the time so just because you're taking an antiviral doesn't mean that antiviral will work against every strain of HIV that you encounter and the other point of philosophy here when giving out um, preventative medication is that you're you're making a kind of a biochemical bet that the medication that's in your system in this case pretty much all the time is going to be greater than that of the growth rate of the virus that invades you so if the balance tips towards the virus either because the virus is resistant or in some cases, due to inoculum, you just get a bunch of virus, which is what we call the viral load. Aha, uh-huh, okay, all right, go ahead, start the sex jokes, <laughs> right here. So I'm going to go there.
3: Bigger inoculation, like a bigger, I don't know, a, I don't want to be crass, but bigger... No, no, it's... it's it Ward, it's not the size of the
2: inoculation. <laughs> <Okay>.
3: <laughs> no, it's how the
1: virus... loads is that
3: what you're
2: without being crude it's the number of viral particles or just the sheer number of particles of virus that you pick up this is actually not
3: news in the initial iPrEx study that's what the study showed people that they were taking the medication in fact they did pill counts to make sure that you were taking them oh. and still a small amount of people um seroconverted from hiv-negative to hiv-positive yeah. and i can tell you you know, news on the ground. They're just living in, in a major city in San Francisco. There are men here who are saying, hey, you know what, I'm on PrEP, no condoms, and I, that's just the way it is. Don't know if it's because of PrEP, but there are people out here who, who use PrEP that way.
2: Right, and they're, they're taking a terribly unnecessary and an uninformed risk.
1: So I think the the end message of this story is pretty much what we've said every other time, which is this is a great medication. People should not stop using it, but they also should continue using some form of protection and avoid at least some of the risky behaviors such as IV drug use. And, you know, if you're going to be engaging in risky behaviors, continue to use protection. And PrEP should work fine. It is something to keep an eye out for that, you know, if more drug-resistant strains of this come up, that PrEP itself may have a limited, useful lifespan. Right. Moving on to our next story, and and I should mention both the PrEP story and this next one I'm about to introduce came from our new research assistant on travel medicine, who I have neglected to mention the last several episodes. <laughs> Much to her irritation. (laughs) So I would like to make sure that credit is given where credit is due and that my girlfriend has been of immense help in, in finding stories for us on weeks that I frankly am too busy or, more accurately, too lazy to do all the research by myself. Thank
3: you, Melanie. Uh, I was going to say, that's a lot you, uh, of topics we're covering. I was like, damn, yeah. gosh, it's been burning to me in <laughs> a while.
2: He really has. No, but uh, I, I think it's fair to say that she's very much a part of Travel Medicine Podcast. So, Melanie Esteva, thank you so much.
1: It is an unpaid position. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but to be fair, so are all of the positions <laughs> on this wonderful, wonderful company.
1: So the next one she found, she brought it up because she's like, hey, you're Greek. Here's a story about a Trojan horse. <laughs> and then she yelled,
2: this is Sparta. <laughs>
1: <laughs> cancer is another area where there's many, many resistant types of cells. And very often, cancer cells become very drug-resistant, and that's why multiple chemotherapies are necessary. That's why people end up having a lot of side effects from having to take a bunch of drugs. So this next story is the the fancy headline is researchers Kill drug resistant leukemia cells using a DNA Trojan horse attack. And the photo credit is your days are up leukemia. <laughs> yeah, I, I always love the sensationalism of of some of these headlines, and I really give credit to these editors, but this is from a study at Ohio State University, and it's a proof of concept study, meaning that it works in the lab. It has not even been attempted on really humans yet. It's not ready to become the next stage in cancer fighting. It's a very young John Connor resistance who needs to be protected and nurtured.
3: <laughs> you got to start somewhere.
2: Yeah, sure. Um,
1: But as for the actual story, you know, getting getting cancer-killing drugs to go exactly where they're needed is is very difficult. And the newest field that may lead to it is appropriately enough nanotechnology. So this is from the journal Small, which I did not even. This journal is so small I was unaware it existed.
2: We're coming up with journals all the time, and it—it's seriously to start to fill a need. Nature and science are—you know—they're wonderful for covering these all-encompassing leaps forward. But a lot of the time, you have technology which doesn't have a niche journal. A, it doesn't have a place for the article to go. That is really a home for such kind of cool technology. So now there are journals for nanotechnology, and Small is one of them.
1: And I would encourage anybody who's interested in in reading journals, Science and Nature are two of the biggest for pop culture. They're a great way for the average person on the street to get a feel for what's going on, and they don't always use anywhere near as much technical jargon as you know journals like Small or... <laughs> The Journal of Sexual Medicine, another favorite over here.
3: (laughs) Well, I have to say
1: props to Small for making the title exciting. Researchers at Ohio State University were treating mice with AML, or acute myeloid leukemia, and using a drug that in the past has been very common, donorubicin, and they had found that some of the cells were entirely resistant to this type of treatment. And the way that resistance worked is when the chemotherapy entered a cancer cell, the cancer cell would quickly respond and pump it right back out through small openings in the cell walls, like those cartoons where somebody runs in through one door and all of a sudden straight through and out the other side.
2: (laughs) Yeah, these these are called efflux pumps. So... And, uh, you know, that that's a great term right there. Efflux pumps are ubiquitous in nature, meaning they're everywhere. So bacteria have them, human cells have them, and their basic uh, function in many different ways is to take particles from inside the cell and they pump them out, sometimes using energy. So you have a particle like donorubicin, which is supposed to act within a cancer cell to essentially tear it apart but as soon as that particle is recognized it's chaperoned up to the efflux and poof taken outside of the cell where it's now harmless. So all the drug will be floating around, but all it will be doing is causing a side effect in those cells which don't have the C-flux pump. But the the cancer cell, which is a monoclonal line a lot of the time, so it's a single cell which is divided, 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 so they're all clones of each other, all have the C-flux pump, and so they're all going to pump it out. So all of a sudden the drug becomes useless for the cancer.
1: Now, the team managed, The team at Ohio managed to carefully manipulate strands of DNA, former viral DNA, and make an origami structure <laughs> with complex folds that can be created in just 10 minutes that are only 100 nanometers across, which is a thousand times smaller than a human hair. And you can take tiny little itty-bitty you know, gumdrops of the chemotherapy and wrap them up in these little pods and then release them into the leukemia cell filled environment. The pumps don't know how to get those out so the, they infiltrate the cells and when a capsule is sufficiently deep inside the cell, the capsule breaks down and the anti-cancer drugs are released. The cell can't react in time to pump the drug back out and it dies. Now, this makes perfect sense to me because I am awful at origami and it can easily defeat me, <laughs> so I can only imagine that it could defeat my cells
3: even faster. And you know, they're showing these <laughs> electromicrograph microscope pictures of these little origami structures And I can just picture a cancer cell going, do 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 Oh, that looks fine. Come on in. (laughs) 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 What can go wrong? I I wonder
1: why they designed the capsules as little little swans and frogs. Yeah. Origami, which are not actual. There's not a bunch of Japanese scientists carefully folding all of these viral
2: packages. They biochemically fold, yeah. And so the Donorupsen has to get to the DNA of the cell in the nucleus. So it has to get pretty far in there. So they... But once a... Particle is in the nucleus. It's pretty hard for the cell to get it out So the donorubicin will go in and it will intercalate in the DNA which means that it's actually going to get in between the strands and All of a sudden the uh, the DNA becomes useless
3: It sounds like so right now these your regular cells could also Say hey, you know what come on in what can go wrong? Mm -hmm. Right, and this is specifically designed
1: right now to attack cells that have drug resistance. So that's why it's only a proof of concept. But we always like talking about future technologies and things that may have utility coming up, which I think is a very nice kind of segue over to our our next story on the resistance, which, Santosh, do you want to cover that?
2: Sure, yeah. So we were talking about super... Uh, super bugs before when we talked about HIV, so resistant HIV. Then we moved on to resistant cancer cells. And now my favorite topic, not not that I love these bugs, but I love killing these bugs, and it's super resistant bacteria. So we have a number of bacteria. Staph aureus is a great example. They're resistant E. coli that have that have developed resistance mechanisms to all of our antibiotics. So the, we're coming to what's called a post-antibiotic era. We're coming to a point where we have to come up with something new, an overhaul of technology where antibiotics won't work anymore. We're not quite there yet. Uh, there are many, many antibiotics that still work well. But new technologies, and sometimes old technologies, like using viruses to kill bacteria, have come into vogue. So this article that I'm about to review is uh, using something called quantum dots. And quantum dots, you can actually go out and buy. They're tiny little photoreactive or photo-excitable particles. And The interesting thing about them is that you can put them into cells and you can hit them with a light, and they will give off light a lot how a fluorophore will do it, except even more so. They'll shine and shimmer. And these little guys will go and enter into cells because they're so tiny that they just get right inside of the membranes, the cell membranes around them. So... They've been tried before in culture to kill cancer cells successfully. So they enter the cancer cell. These are graphene quantum dots. And you hit them with a light and they get photo excited. And the radiation they emit kills off the cell. So this was tried now in bacteria with a group who are from Denver and Boulder, Colorado. Yay! Go Broncos! These researchers... Well, they put the quantum dots in cell culture with the bacteria. They let the quantum dots get into the bacteria, and then they excited them with light. And boom, they killed Klebsiella, which is a horrible gram-negative stool bacteria, which when it gets into your bloodstream is horrible. It killed Staph aureus. It killed a very broadly resistant E. coli, and a strain of Salmonella. So... We had a a wonderful breakthrough on top of that, and the reason that this got into the journal Nature is that they were actually able to co-culture the E. coli with a strain of human cells, and they were able to get the quantum dots to go into the E. coli and kill them while leaving the human cells intact, and that's a big step, even in culture, to show that you can kill off the bacteria but leave the the host, in this case, it's in a test tube, but the host intact.
1: Just for a frame of reference, these quantum dots, we said the the origami nanoparticles were a thousand times smaller than a hair. The quantum dots are individually 20,000 times smaller than a human hair. (laughs) And bad news for mole people, quantum dots are inactive in the dark. They have to have some kind of light to be effective. So... Once you have them, usually you hear "avoid sunlight" from your doctor. Here, it's going to be like "go out,
3: get that tan."
2: <laughs> well, but that may not. I would even love, work, it, if right
3: wrote, I would love <laughs> it if my doctor
2: wrote, I would love it if my
3: doctor wrote me a says, "Go to Hawaii, <laughs> lay on the my beach." P-
2: we do <laughs> that's hilarious. We do have to say though, for instance, if you're trying to treat a bloodstream infection or an abscess that's in the liver or something like that, you're in trouble because there's no light inside of the human body. We do not emit light.
3: Um, now is this only a visible spectrum of light or do they mean do they mean electromagnetic waves? Because certain electromagnetic waves like X-rays, like microwaves, like other, you know, radiation can penetrate tissue that, that are not as sexy as laying on a beach, but uh, sure. might get into the bloodstream a little bit better or into the liver <laughs> a little bit better.
2: Right. I, I believe this is photo excitation. So these are wavelengths that are somewhere near the visible spectrum. It's not all the way to the X-ray for instance, um, right. which is um, to the to the far edges of, of not the far edges I should say, but um, away from our visible spectrum that the human eye can see. Oh, right. So we're
3: bombarded by visible light
2: here. Right. right. So it's it's in and around the uh, the visible light spectrum. Right.
3: Now it's
1: interesting because we're kind of entering a post antibiotic era due to. Doctors over-prescribing drugs for things like bronchitis, which doesn't require it, yes. or to farmers giving livestock a bunch of drugs to prevent infections in them, and thus creating drug-resistant.
2: Yeah, or just to encourage growth to make you know big fat pigs and cows, and and this is something that we know is that when you pump uh, animals and humans full of antibiotics, uh, we actually you know grow big and fat. Um, in, in a lot of cases so yeah.
1: So this is really kind of where the future of treating infections may be going because we're rapidly losing our ability to use antibiotics so next time you have some kind of infection you could say instead of oh yeah I went to my doctor for az pack," Z-Pak you'd be like I went to my doctor for blue <laughs> or oh really you had blue I was infected with something that required a week of green
2: uh-huh. <laughs> that would be awesome
1: It would be, right? (laughs) Like, my favorite color is also my ideal treatment
2: for infection. (laughs) Ah, purple never works on me.
1: (laughs) Oh, the purple infections, those are bad. Yeah, those are... So now that we've learned a lot about the resistance, whether being treated with purple or (laughs) using origami to defeat cancer or even just development of resistance to PrEP... I think it's only fair that we give equal airtime to Skynet, to the electronic overmind that will attempt to destroy us all.
2: Uh, we're
1: now, you guys know I have a very mixed mixed feelings in terms of a lot of technology on the one hand i do want people to be more educated and i encourage everyone to go and look up their conditions and have questions for your doctors on the other i'm always very leery of things that just make the person on the street the equivalent of a
0: imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time
1: position without the training and education and that's what this next app does that we that came up in an article in New Scientist and it is let's see if I can find what what was the fun headline a new app has death covered.
2: <laughs> well, that, that is
1: catchy. It is catchy and I was like alright I'll bite, I'll click through
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: and Basically, in about half of the 55 million or so people who die each year, there are not enough doctors available around the world to make a diagnosis and have a cause of death. So deaths are either not registered at all, you know, like the mob, (laughs) or the cause is a guess or left blank on the death certificate, which is felt to be useless for public policy. Knowing why people die is how you manage a country's health system. For example, if you know that the major cause of death in the U.S. is due to heart attacks and then diabetes and cancer, you can develop programs designed to educate the public about those things. So knowing why people die is important for helping to address those causes. So, to tackle this problem of there being areas with too few doctors, a group from Australia has developed an app that works out a cause of death more accurately than a human doctor <laughs> that lets anyone with a smartphone or tablet issue a death certificate. Now, before I go off onto my rants, I'm going to go what a little bit. What can go wrong with into, that? I mean, <laughs> that just sounds. I mean, yeah, what can go wrong with that? They're already dead. Right. Um, To get an answer, volunteers interview the dead person's friends and family. And if you don't see problems with this immediately.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You're dead inside. You're you're cold as ice. Volunteer.
1: Like somebody's dead, and then some guy goes up, hi, blogger and app user, I'd like to ask you a set questionnaire about your recently deceased person, you know, the one who's lying right there on the street. Um So, volunteers interview the dead person's friends and family using a set questionnaire entering symptoms into the app, which is uploaded to a computer, assessed by an algorithm, and the algorithm provides a ranked list or a multiple choice of the most probable causes of death. Question one. Was he hit by a car? Yes or no? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And then, like, hmm, hit by a car crossing the street On the way to the ice cream store was the cause of death, A, heart attack, B, car accident, 3, shrapnel, 4, cancer, E, all of the above. Uh, Now, if an internet connection is available, it can check it against the symptoms and app at once. Otherwise, responses are stored by the app until they can be processed. Now, when I first read this, I was like, really? This sounds like an even worse idea than some of the others we've mentioned on here, which I will not dignify with names. <laughs> now, right as I was turning Hulk green in anger and rage, mm. Mm. I you know, continued going through and found out this is really not meant to be designed for countries like ours, where there are a lot of doctors available. Um, comparatively speaking. You know, the, the researcher says, you know, he just returned from Cambodia, where every month rural midwives just send random pieces of paper on causes of death through the mail, so they can send it through tablets. Right. They, the original diagnostic algorithm was used from six sites in India, Mexico, Tanzania, and the Philippines. So you'll note, the U.S., Australia, and England... None of those were in there. They're using places that have rural care or no care at all. Yeah. Uh, and they used data from gold standard cases, patients who already had verified diagnoses to build the questionnaire. Right. Then they checked the system to see if it correctly matched responses and reports to the cause of death. And the field trials of this app were done in completely different countries, China, Papua New Guinea, and Bangladesh. They found that the app was more accurate on average than doctors who reviewed the data, and the final version takes 25 minutes to complete and simple enough for a person with minimal training to administer. So you won't be finding this on the App Store anytime soon.
2: No, please no.
1: (laughs) So Lopez and his colleagues said they prefer not to involve doctors in these interviews since, one, their time can be better spent elsewhere, and I was like, oh, okay. And two, they may end the interview early if they feel they know the cause of death, which makes the app less reliable. So it's going to be released in 20 countries by 2017, and it will. I, it's meant to help governments figure out where best to allocate resources. Now, Brazil is interested because its doctors right now can only make post-mortem diagnoses. If this app is successful, that could change. So in areas where there's no physician, in Amazon areas, you could capture cause of death. So I'm of a very mixed mind in that handing over, entering all this information about causes of death around the world into a single computer program sounds like (laughs) the first problem here. And then putting that power into the hands of the man on the street who's like, do you have cancer? Fill out this survey and you
3: might be able to give a death certificate to somebody.
2: Oh dear. Yeah. Can
3: we, you know, for the uh, non non MD listeners, can we can we talk about a little bit about the death certificate and the cause of death and what what a difficult diagnosis that can be? Cuz I you know, Josh, you probably you probably write more of these than any of us because you're you do adult medicine, right? And you deal with older, you know, people who are near the end of their lives. But for me, my experience has been that you have to put down a single. If you put down a single cause of um, death, it's sometimes complicated. What if a cancer patient had a blood clot and also had a pneumonia and also had a bloodstream infection and at the end died?
1: I mean, what do you oh, put you down? Tuesday for me? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah,
3: exactly, exactly. 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 What is the cause of death? Well is it the you, you know is it cancer is it infection is it pneumonia? I mean really it's cancer but sometimes there are you know that code you have to put down that one code and there are only a few acceptable codes for writing down for causes of death. It's very difficult to actually pin down what what killed a person.
1: It is and specifically in the case you mentioned Ward, Cancer is actually a risk for forming blood clots, and it does destroy your immune system. So if somebody stopped breathing because they had a blood clot in their lungs, but they might have been able to fight against that if they hadn't also had an infection, and they wouldn't have developed either one of those if they hadn't been on chemo for the cancer. So, you know, there's not a single cause of death, and the thought that you could reduce all this to a few button clicks and a 25-minute survey on an app is frankly, insulting, but I, I appreciate the areas that, you know, better to have somebody minimally trained in an area where there is no doctor than I, I just, I feel like it would be a mistake if we suddenly start seeing this pop up on the App Store next year. Hey, issue causes of death to your family and friends. <laughs> um, you know, it's one thing to get ordained as a minister online. Yeah, yeah. It's another to be ordained as a coroner. <laughs> right.
2: It's, it's really tough a lot what? of the time when we're asked by administration and insurance, is a, you know, please reduce a person's complex medical condition to a code or a set of codes.
3: Well, what often ends up happening is people end up, cardiac arrest being ends up being right. the diagnosis for what? <laughs> death. And, and, you know, in, in
2: fact... Their heart stopped, exactly, their, heart, their stopped. heart
3: stopped, yeah. But, you know, everything before that heart stopped... Whether that person was hit by a bus or had a blood clot, well, you know, I think it matters.
1: Sure. Yeah. So, as I said, I'm, I'm very leery. I see where there are some definite benefits to this, but I'm like, well, you know, we're really just giving Skynet more information about how to defeat us around the world. <laughs>
3: It's way more fun, by the way, to be ordained at a, as a minister because you get invited to weddings.
2: Yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> if exactly. I get this
3: app, what, what pray tell am I going to get invited to? Yeah,
2: every party ever is a like, please don't call that guy again. All he does is walk around and talk about his death certificates. It's horrible. Nobody <laughs> even knows that guy. He just shows up when people die. No, I, I think that A, we have to get. The, the computers have to get much, much better at uh, symptom recognition. The questionnaires will have to get much better refined. And we'll have to get much better at human-computer interaction and be able to trust those machines before these types of programs can be implemented. Because otherwise, it is just surrendering decision-making to an, an algorithm. And that's not the right thing to do.
1: Well... Moving on to our next Skynet story. This one comes out of New Scientist. And just see if you spot the problem in the headline alone. (laughs) Artificial intelligence reads doctor's notes to find hidden links in cancer cases.
2: (laughs) Yeah, there you go.
1: I can't see how that could go wrong at all. Yeah. So a team at Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York is training an artificial intelligence. Those words always send a shudder down my spot. Training an artificial intelligence. There
2: you go. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
1: To find similarities between cases that human doctors might miss. Now, that's not a bad idea, right? We're humans. We are going to make mistakes. You can't pick up everything. Right. So the software combs through 100 million sentences taken from clinical notes about, ke- about people with cancer and looks into all that data to try to find something interesting. Now, first off, I want to know how a computer in artificial intelligence is managing to read a 100 million notes of doctor's handwriting. <laughs> there are times that I can't even read my own notes,
2: No, but that's the uh that's true so that's why if it's, if I it's think. handwritten yeah, if they are handwritten notes rather than electronic medical records, then just the the handwriting and the the letter recognition alone you know i i it was it was horrible you know and and still to this day handwriting recognition is not great so if it's trying to look through that many notes uh, at once, I can't imagine what the error rate is.
3: Let's give them the benefit yeah. of the doubt. I, I so, this
1: so this patient, this patient was infected with Dragon. <laughs> uh, but the program basically takes the sentences and sorts them into clusters such as symptoms, medical histories, observations, and it may report a common observation across several different medical records. So... If a doctor's note recommends a particular course of treatment for, say, leukemia, and this notes that around the country, all the doctors it's pulling from all tend to recommend this treatment even though the standard of care may be something different, it could pick up on a noteworthy connection and it shows relationships between different comments or courses of treatment. So now the clusters are being compared against the records of about 2,000 people with different kinds of cancer, and the researchers are looking for hidden associations between these notes, genes, and blood sequencing. So people with similar genetic results might have the same kind of note in their files. So it might show that, oh, people with this gene respond better to this kind of treatment. People with this gene respond better to this. So the hope is that these associations will inspire ideas for research. And it is not meant to do anything other than generate research topics. So in that sense, I'm like, okay, but we're still teaching another computer about all our weaknesses. And, you know, I'll tell you, when the Terminators come, it's not going to be giant Arnolds. It's going to be tiny little bugs dispersed. Dispersed at our system with each of our weaknesses. Oh, forget right.
3: that! If if a Terminator just showed up and showed me my Google search results, I would die of embarrassment. <laughs> <laughs> they have me, they have me beat right there.
1: Ward, you will surrender now, or I will show everyone your porn. <laughs> oh God, <laughs> take me.
3: <laughs>
1: so that is resistance and Skynet or The Rise of the Resistance. Now there is one journal article that didn't quite fit into any of any of these topics, but the headline I know is so sensationalized that I feel it would be a disservice to not cover and debunk it. Gotcha. Now. Ward you mentioned this a little bit earlier so I'm just going to go ahead and read the headline and then I will let you two discuss. <laughs> All right, so this one came from iFL science which you know I love them and I'm glad that they're getting people interested but I am starting to get a little irritated with their their clickbaity buzzfeed sensationalist headlines.
2: Yeah, it's it's bad.
1: So, the headline is, and for those of you who are turning it off after this, please keep in mind, we're going to explain why this is not what it sounds like. (laughs) Scientists have reversed autism in mice.
2: (laughs) I think the only word I like in there are scientists. I Um, like mice. (laughs) (laughs) Mice are good, too. If the the headline was, scientists, mice... (laughs) <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So here's the problem. I mean, there's so many problems with that sentence, but the very first one is there's not a single cause of autism.
2: Right. Our autism, when everybody out there, listen, when you hear the word autism, you should think of the word cough or rash. It's a symptom it's it's what we see on the outside it is not the underlying diagnosis or the cause so this is a end result you know when you see an autistic person their their behavior that you see is the end result of some process and each one can be varied from you know one case to the next with several, you know, cases that are kind of clustered together. So, in this case we're going to be talking about a potential genetic cause of autism.
1: Right. So the actual suggestion made oh, by this study Sorry, a
2: potential genetic cases of some some cases of autism.
1: Right. So the the better, less exciting headline, <laughs> but more accurate version of the story would be a new study suggests that scientists have managed to reverse some autism like behaviors yes. by manipulating a single gene in young and adult mice.
2: There you
1: go. The gene is called shank three, so you basically the the headline also could have read scientists shank mice into
3: autism. <laughs> Out of that autism. would have been that would have been a much yeah. more accurate and catchy. Catchy <laughs> title <laughs> Mice get shanked. End up autistic. <laughs> yeah. Well, Santos,
1: you're our researcher, yeah. so why don't you why don't you explain the research behind this autism study?
2: Yeah, uh, I'm I'm happy to do that. So, these first of all, you're dealing with mice who are actually engineered to be autistic. So you have a a clonal line of mice that are that are autistic. For and, and they've been bred. That way, and for for this particular research. So, the idea behind this is really simple. The scientists were looking for uh, a genetic cause of autism, and this is a um, a line of mice that have been genetically manipulated to have autism, but their reasons or the collective reasons for why they have autistic behavior is not fully known. So they were manipulating various genes, uh, either overexpressing or underexpressing those genes in order to try to reverse the behavior. The, so make the mice go from an autistic, what's called a phenotype or how they behave, to a non-autistic phenotype. So in this case, they manipulated a gene called SHANK3, or it's also called PROSAP2. And this is a, a gene or a protein The protein product is important in the synapse, which is the connection between two neurons in the brain. So the signaling that goes on between uh, one, one neuron to the other is a long thread goes down called an axon, and it meets the body of the next neuron, and that little space in between is called a synapse. And this little protein was upregulated in these mice, this protein called shank 3, and the uh, autism-like behaviors in these mice reversed. So this was a a wonderful finding, and uh, I believe that there is a shank 3 human homolog as well. So this is a potential cause of autism in some people, and this opens the door uh, yet another door, I should say, because we do have several good candidates for genetic causes of autism, so this opens yet another door for trying to treat human beings with autism
1: now, the behaviors that were reversed, they managed to reverse their social aversion or their you know being scared of interacting with others, okay. and repetitive behaviors things like rocking. Those were the only things. They did see an improvement in some synapses, but they could not restore anxiety levels and coordination skills. So, again, even in the incredibly far-off world where we use this to treat people, it did not reverse autism. It just fixed some of the behaviors, such as the social aversion. It's not going to make them suddenly interact. It just may make them avoid, you know, avoid avoiding interaction, and it may get rid of some of those repetitive behaviors. So this is a very, very dodgy, vague headline.
2: <laughs> it is. It's. I, I think the breakthrough itself is really beautiful, and it, it shows how multifactorial autism is, and it shows what we can do from the genetic side to treat um, some cases of autism. But... Yes, the headline from IFLS: guys, come on, I, I know you want followers on Facebook, etc, but you don't need to do it this way. please cut it out.
1: Our research assistant is more responsible <laughs>
2: <laughs> Yes, she is. Thanks, thanks again, Melanie.
1: <laughs> Melanie Estaba, everybody. So that. Pretty much wraps up this week's Journal Club. I thought briefly about using the train's wasps to detect cancer, but then I thought, who wants wasps released into their mouths? (laughs) If you're not sure what I'm talking about, please go go look it up. They use sniffer wasps to detect chemical odors, so soon drug-sniffing and bomb-sniffing wasps may may replace dogs at the airport.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's so. That, and that, I think that'll be a better aversion for trying to smuggle drugs.
0: Than me. <laughs> <laughs> right, so I'm, but, I'm gonna
2: have these wasps sniff you. Well What? What? Yeah, but what about the innocent? <laughs> <laughs> Uh,
1: so rather than go into that story, I'll leave everyone to look that up themselves. Sure. And enjoy. Yeah. But that brings to a conclusion this week's journal club. As always, if you guys have any comments, questions, concerns, you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at Dr. J Comedy. Santosh is at ToshiFro. Ward is at Travel and Medicine. You can always reach us on Facebook at the Travel Medicine Podcast page. We love to hear from you. All the stories that we covered are in our Facebook feed. Our music is composed by Rachel Leisure. If you have had a chance to listen to the radio drama, one of our new experimental formats. First, thank you. Please tell us what you thought. Second, I apologize for the sound production. <laughs> and and until next time, as always, happy travels. Bye, guys. Happy
3: travels. Yay.